0: Right Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Dana, and I'm one of the pastors here. and Tom was mentioning um, during announcements that he and I met when we both were working for intervarsity. I worked there for twelve years. And early in that time, I was living in Waterloo, Ontario, in this little townhouse that was near the university campus. and one morning, I was still drinking coffee, and there's a knock on my door, and I open the door, and there's a kid that I've never seen before. And he was, um, you know, he was kind of a classic university student, like tall and lanky and long, kind of shaggy, curly black hair, and he wouldn't really make eye contact with me, and he's kind of like, you know, I, don't, I don't know how to describe this, but he's, you know, he hasn't quite grown in his body yet, right? So he's kind of like shuffling around. He's like, uh, hey, uh, Julie said that I could, like, leave my stuff here. and he threw down this enormous duffel bag (laughs) and we lived in a townhouse complex and so I had never seen him before I thought he had the wrong house and I said well I don't really think that we've met before my name is Dana he's like oh yeah yeah Uh, I'm Alex and I have like English with Julie and she said I could leave my stuff here you know for that Bible thing (laughs) oh (laughs) for the Bible thing okay (laughs) So we were planning to go on a, a, we were going to a conference for university students where they would study the Gospel of Mark for six days. And one of the obstacles for students is always cost whenever you're going away. So we had made a commitment together as a team that we would uh, raise the money and pay, like cover the $500 registration fee for anybody who wasn't a believer yet who wanted to go to the conference. And that was great, but it meant that the invitations, like our students just had gone wide with invitations, and all these kids were coming who we didn't know. All I knew was the numbers, (laughs) you know. And there were so many kids we stopped even trying to get cars to go. We just sent them all to the bus station and rented a U-Haul truck for the luggage. So here's Alex with his giant duffel bag at my feet. And I was like, all right, for the Bible thing, come on in, buddy. And I got out of his way, and he threw his bag in, went off to class. And I could not help but wondering, does this kid know what he's getting into? Does he know what's going to happen six days? All he's going to do is study the Bible. Okay. Well, in this series this fall, we've been exploring obstacles to faith, uh, which are like the reasons that people just, they get stuck. They don't want to explore faith. And Today we're going to talk about a really common obstacle, which is the belief that the Bible is corrupted and untrustworthy. And for Christians, the Bible is really central to who we are. Right? The author of 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, "All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient." Equipped for every good work, we literally think that the Bible can teach us how to live. but the Bible is ancient, like absolutely ancient. How can we possibly trust it now obviously I mean I'm a pastor, I'm kind of biased, so um, you you can guess which side it's going to fall on for me, but It really does matter to me that we know this, that we know why we can trust the Bible, because the Bible is the best way for people to get to know God. Imagine how tragic it would be if someone missed out on knowing God because they were skeptical about the Bible. We say Bible, I say Bible, and it sounds simple enough, but actually the Bible is this collection of 66 66 books by 40 authors written in at least two ancient languages over the course of 1,600 years in a whole variety of styles. And so I just want to acknowledge for you that there's no way that I'll be able to answer every question about every one of those books in 25 minutes. Um, So I'm going to focus my attention this morning on the gospels of jesus which are admittedly only four books of the bible partly that's just because i got to narrow somehow but also here's the thing if we can't trust the accounts of the life of jesus then the christian faith kind of falls apart we are all about the life of jesus and so here are the four questions that we're going to look at today first of all can I trust the authors of those four biographies? And then, can I trust the manuscript, which means, like, can I trust the handwritten copies of the biographies that were made over time? And then, can I trust the translation of those manuscripts into English? And then, finally, can I trust the interpretation that we're making today? So we're just going to jump right in. Can I trust the authors? Now, the Gospels are four books. And they each tell the story of the life of Jesus, and they're named now for their authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But strictly speaking, they were anonymous. Those four guys didn't sign their names to their work, although it sure would have made all of the research a lot easier. But the early church testimony, which means the opinion of the people who had the very first written accounts in their hands, is absolutely unanimous about who wrote them. There's just, there's like literally there are no other contenders for people to have written those Gospels. So there's no work to do to verify anybody else. Everybody agrees it was written by them. Matthew, his name is also sometimes Levi. Some of you will know the story of Jesus calling the tax collector named Levi on the beach with the fishermen. And that's the same guy. That's Matthew. He was one of Jesus' disciples. Um, Mark, or sometimes he's called John Mark, he was a companion of Peter's. So later when Peter was, um, was leading the early church, Mark would have traveled with Peter and knew him quite well. And Peter was maybe the closest disciple to Jesus. At the very least, Peter was part of this inner circle. When you study the Gospels, there are groups of people who sort of get closer and closer to Jesus. And Peter was part of this tight inner circle of three, who got to see things that nobody else saw, like the transfiguration on top of a mountain, or the healing of Jairus's daughter. So Mark is telling us Peter's account. And then Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote most of the old, uh, most of the New Testament, and Luke was a physician and sort of a, an early journalist. He w- he did a lot of writing, and so he wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. And then he wrote also the Acts of the Apostles, a second volume that was kind of like a sequel. And those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wrote what are known as the Synoptic Gospels, which means that they're all written, you know, relatively in the same time period, and they have a lot of overlapping content. They're quite similar. Some of that is because Mark's was written first, and Matthew and Luke would have used his writing as a source or a resource in theirs. John was written a little bit later, and he's the only one that there's any kind of question about his authorship. We know it was written by John, but there's this one guy in the year 125 who wrote a book, and he refers to in his book uh, someone named John the Apostle and someone named John the Elder. And it's not clear from his writing if there's two separate people or there's just one guy named John who had two separate roles. You know, like the way that we would say Terry Golder, who's the director of the Christmas hampers, or Terry Golder, who works at the church, right? And and it would be unclear, do we mean there's two separate people named Terry Golder or just one person? Imagine if there were two of you, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, the thing is, There are no competitors for these authors, no one else to check out. Everybody agreed that they wrote the Gospels. But the real question is, can we trust that they recorded things accurately? I mean, all four of those guys were close to Jesus. They were already believers. Wouldn't they have been so motivated to convert people to Christianity that they would write or say anything to get people to believe in Jesus? Even if it meant... Making up miracles or stretching the truth and twisting things around. Well, there are a couple of things to consider. One is the timing, and we're going to look at that. For the most part, scholars agree that Mark was the earliest gospel written around the year 70 A.D., and then Matthew and Luke were written in the 80s, and John sometime in the 90s. But some scholars are arguing pretty persuasively that Luke must have finished writing his second book, Acts of the Apostles, by the year 62. Because the book doesn't tell about the death of the Apostle Paul, even though Acts is all about the Apostle Paul. And there's no reason that you would leave out the tragic death of your main character unless the book was finished and in circulation well, Paul was still alive. That kind of explains why the death would be left out. So if we work backwards from there and we allow just one year for each book to be completed, which anyone who's tried to write a book knows is crazy, um, the Gospel of Luke would have been written and finished by 61, and Mark would have been finished by 60. Why does that even matter? It matters because it means that those written accounts like the, the written down accounts of the healing of the paralytic or of the woman who is anointing Jesus' feet at the dinner table, those written stories would have been in the hands of literally hundreds of people who were alive when they happened, who were eyewitnesses to them, because the gap is so small. Oh, because I didn't finish the timeline. Because the crucifixion of Jesus happened in 33. So the the gap between 33 and 60, 27 years, people who were alive when they happened would still have had, they still would have been there to look at the written accounts and verify them. And furthermore, opponents of Christianity, people who didn't believe in Jesus, they would also still be alive to critique it and to point out inaccuracies, claims as crazy as an empty tomb or Jesus walking around after he was supposed to be dead, those would never have gotten traction if everybody who was there was laughing about how inaccurate the stories were. It just wouldn't have stuck. So timing is one reason that we can believe the Gospels are reliable. But often our obstacle is the difference between the accounts Sometimes one gospel writer tells the story one way and another one tells it a different way, in a different order, with a different emphasis. Well, we have to remember that this was an oral culture, and so all of these stories would have been told multiple times before they were ever written down. And oral storytelling allows for a 10 to 40% variation in the details of any story. But it doesn't mean that it's inaccurate. There are always, in oral cultures, fixed details, particular points that have to be communicated accurately. And the community who's listening would, and in fact they're required, to interrupt and correct the storyteller if they get those details wrong. So, it's true that the synoptic Gospels have some variation, but once you allow for the oral tradition, they're remarkably similar in their core points. Plus, if you've watched any crime dramas on TV, you know that when accounts are too similar, that means we think the people got together to get their story straight ahead of time, right? So ironically, the variation between the accounts is what helps us know there probably were four distinct witnesses recording their own version of events. For all those reasons, over the centuries, scholars have largely agreed that we can trust the authors of the Gospels. But what about the manuscripts? Once the oral accounts are actually written down, then copies are made by hand. I mean, this is a long time before the printing press. There are no photocopiers. There are no cell phones to, like, snap a picture and make sure you've got it for sure. And we all know how unreliable our handwriting can be. So while we're talking about this, we're going to do a little experiment. I've asked the Dream Team to write the same sentence down on two pieces of paper, and they're going to give it to one person in the back row of each side. What I want you to do when you get it is copy that sentence down on two new pieces of paper. I want you to write it twice. And then I want you to give those two new pieces of paper to two people in the row ahead of you. Okay? You're going to do it quickly. We don't have a ton of time, but you're going to copy it twice, give it to two people in the row ahead of you. When you get a piece of paper, I want you to do the same thing. Copy it down twice and give it to two people in the row ahead of you. Let's see how far up we can get. Here's the thing. We think that copying by hand is like playing a giant game of telephone. Right? Did you guys play this when you were kids? Yeah. Okay. So it's like one person whispering, I see a Bluetooth. And then it goes down the line. They pass it along until the kid at the end is like, I peed on the new roof. And everybody laughs because it's totally different and, and often funny. And if that were the case, We would have no way of knowing from the writings that we have now, what did the original manuscripts actually say? There'd be no way to know. But it doesn't really work like that. The manuscripts, first of all, are carefully copied by professional scribes. I mean, their whole job, their entire career is to hand copy books. Now, I don't want that job, but I believe them that they were good at it, (laughs) okay? And so each scribe might copy, for the sake of argument, let's say they might copy a manuscript out two times. Here's the demonstration. And then each of those manuscripts would get copied twice, and so on, and so on, through the ages. Till at the end, what you have is an enormous Pool of copies, and that actually is what we have. In fact, we have more than 5,000 complete and partial manuscripts from the New Testament. It's more than there are for any other piece of ancient writing. It's just like this game that we're still playing. I can see people frantically playing it. I appreciate that. We started with two people getting the same sentence to copy. And they gave it to two, and then to four, and then to eight. And so now we have all these people who have a version of the, same th- of the sentence in their hands. So we're going to see what happens. How many people have a current version in their hand? Can you just put your hand up and show me? Okay, they're working hard to finish it. Okay, all right, let's see. Tenille, can you tell me what yours says? It says, Dana is a great teacher. That's so nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, who else along this row has one? Great, Deborah. Dana is a great teacher. Okay, let's go on this side. Who's got one on this side? Okay, Stacy. Okay, Steph. Oh, it's so nice. This is so nice. It also says Dana's a great teacher. Does anybody have anything even a little bit different from that? No? This morning at the end, somebody had, by the time we got near the front, somebody had, darn, I'm a great teacher. And I thought that was quite funny. So, Okay. Okay, this is exactly what happens with all of these ancient manuscripts. They get passed down over time and copied, but at the end, we can compare them to one another. If you compare a hundred copies of the same manuscript and ninety of them say exactly the same thing, then you can be pretty sure that that's the version that's accurate. And If you find that there's some variation, like in the picture up here, there's two that are orange. If you find that there's variation, you can trace back where those variations came from. We traced it back in the rows this morning, and we found out Brendan Mitchell just has terrible handwriting, and somebody (laughs) didn't know what he wrote, and that's what it's like. Sometimes it's a copying error. It's just like the predecessor of the typo and it has huge consequences. Take this example. First Samuel 8:16 in the New King James Version says this, "He will take your finest young men and your donkeys." Okay? The same scripture in today's New International Version says, "He will take the best of your cattle and your donkeys." That's kind of a big difference, no matter how you feel about cows. <laughs> right? Okay. Well, it turns out one letter in a Hebrew word, accounts for that difference. These don't look very similar, the H and the Q in our alphabet, but in the Hebrew alphabet, those letters look very similar to one another. One letter. Since now, though, we have access to earlier manuscripts, we can trace back up the line and find its source. And so the earliest manuscripts tell us that cattle is actually the word that's supposed to be there. And over time, we keep discovering more and more older sources. And the older the sources are, the more accurate they're likely to be because there hasn't been as much opportunity for errors to accumulate over time in the copying. So let's talk about translation even if the manuscripts in the Hebrew and the Greek are reliable. Don't they get all corrupted and twisted when we start to translate them into English? The translators have so much guesswork to do. Okay. On the one hand, I just want to point out, we trust translators every day, right? Like if, if you're driving a car that was made in Japan... You read that instruction manual, that owner's manual, and you just believe that the translators knew what they were doing. And the button that's supposed to mean the wipers really does mean the wipers. We tra- we trust that professional translators know what they're doing all the time. But on the other hand, it's true that translators have to do a lot of interpretation for us as part of their jobs. The goal of a good translation in the Bible is to is to capture accurately the Hebrew and the Greek, in a way that is still understandable in English. So the competing values are accuracy and readability. And there's sort of a continuum between those two. Now, a lot of us, this week we had this exact conversation in our Mark studies, right? In Mark's account of the story of Jesus healing the leper, we read in the Revised Standard Version that Jesus was moved with pity. And we really liked that word. We are like, oh, it's so, Jesus is moved with pity, so compassionate. You know, we just, we really felt that with him. Well, it turns out that the Greek word that gets translated moved with pity literally means moved from the bowels. <laughs> That's right. You're welcome. That's because for the Greeks, the bowels were the seat of all emotion, the way that we think of the heart being the place that all of our emotion comes from now. So if the translator had swung hard to the accuracy side, we would read, In the story of the leper, Jesus moved from the bowels, reached out, and touched him. <laughs> yeah, right. In English, that is, that's like a super weird thing to say. had a more spicy lunch than he wanted to, rather than that he's moved with a lot of deep compassion. And so the accurate translation wouldn't be very accurate at all. So the translators made a decision. In the RSV, we get moved with pity. In other translations, sometimes it's moved with anger or with indignation or with compassion. They make a judgment call for us. Translation is a science, but it's not exact. And I want to suggest to you that the more important thing is that you understand the translation that you're using. Understand what values were driving my translation and what are the strengths and the weaknesses of those values. So that if you're reading the New American Standard Version, that is an extremely accurate translation. You're going to get almost word-for-word parallel with the Greek but it's super clunky to read. Like, it really sounds terrible when you read it out loud. If you're reading the New Living Translation, you're going to get an extremely readable version. It flows, it's smooth, we know all the words, but you just have to understand that probably some accuracy gets sacrificed in that mix. Understand. What you have, and then you might want to consider comparing multiple translations that are quite different so that you get a fuller picture of what the text really says. Now, here's the place where the question of translation overlaps with the question of manuscripts. Many of our earliest and classic English translations, like the beloved King James, we've got some King James fans in the house today, a few. Thanks, Bob. Okay. King James manuscripts were based on translations, were based on relatively late manuscripts because it was written in 1611, 400 years ago, and those were the best sources that were available when that translation was written. But we know that the later manuscripts are more susceptible to the accumulation of errors, And so over time, older manuscripts are discovered and new translations are made based on more reliable sources. Now, I'm not knocking the King James Version. There are incredible features of that, right? It's so beautiful. The language, the English language is so beautiful and there's poetry in that. And it really was done the best that it could. Those were the best sources in 1611. But if you're interested in accuracy, you might want to consider something like the NRSV or the TNIV that are the best sources available to us today. So we've talked about authors. We've talked about the manuscript copies. We've talked about, what about the effects of modern interpretation? Does it make sense to trust the Bible when it's been used to justify some really archaic beliefs, when it's so culturally regressive. The Bible has a lot to say about slavery, for instance, or the role of women, and because those passages can be shocking and even insulting to us, lots of people just stop right there and they run from the Bible. If that's you, you might want to consider that sometimes, it just doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Take slavery, for example. We read slavery and we immediately think about the enslavement of African peoples in North America. The kidnapping, human trafficking, horrific living conditions, the complete and utter lack of human rights. But there is an enormous difference between the modern slave trade and the indentured servitude that was really common in New Testament times. I mean, often those men and women in the New Testament chose servitude themselves. It, was, it would be for an agreed upon and fixed time period. And even while they were indentured servants, they made wages that were comparable, to very comparable to other workers. And they could save money. And while their masters were entitled to their work, they weren't owned. They didn't own their bodies or their families or their offspring. And so in some ways, when the New Testament says slavery, we might be talking more about something that looks like the servants in Downton Abbey than what slaves look like in 12 Years of Slave. We also have to be kind of careful to consider, to not consider our own, our current historical period of time superior to any other one. Like attitudes towards women that were considered progressive, normal, even progressive in the 1940s, would likely be outdated today. Guess what? Attitudes that we think are progressive today, they are going to be outdated in just a few years' time. And so we have to at least judge the Bible based on the standards and attitudes of its own time rather than ours. I do... I just want to acknowledge, though, how substantial an obstacle this is, the interpretation. I mean people have been really deeply hurt when the church has used the Bible to justify allowing only men to hold positions of authority, for instance, or to justify eradicating the culture of indigenous people, or to justify making LGBTQ people feel like they don't have any place in the church. There has been very serious misuse of the Bible, And I am so, so sorry for that. We have to do better. But here's the thing. Christians believe that the Bible is powerful. We believe that it can teach us about God and about ourselves, that it can instruct for life, it can reveal deep spiritual truths, that it can actually call people to faith. In 2 Timothy, again, Paul says, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is going to sound glib, and I don't mean it that way. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can't stop reading the Bible because it has been misused, even seriously misused. So what should we do instead? Well, first of all, I just want to encourage you to read and study and learn. I hope that this sermon has helped you a little bit, but I am not under any illusions of answering all your questions. This is not my area of expertise. I learned a lot this week getting ready for this sermon. But if there are questions that you still have or your friends still have, go ahead and find out the answers. Do some research. Second, I think we need to be careful to acknowledge the tough things. You don't need an airtight response to every question or every concern. It's okay to admit that, yes, there are variations between the Gospels. Yes, there would absolutely have been errors in the copying of manuscripts. It's okay to admit that to our great sadness and shame, scripture has been misused and people have been hurt. Don't work so hard to rationalize those things that your argument comes off sounding defensive. Be humble and apologize and acknowledge the challenges. The third thing is, I think we need to keep relationships central. Remember that Bible study, exploring the Bible, has to fit into the rhythm of a relationship. Otherwise, people are just going to feel like projects, something to check off your to-do list, and that is a terrible feeling. Terrible. We've been using this um, BLESS material that the Covenant Denomination puts out for a few weeks now, and today the S in the BLESS acronym, which is on the handout in your bulletin, stands for Serve with Love. And so we have to be attentive to people, to their real lives and their real needs. And even if you're in the middle of a very stimulating, ongoing debate about whether the Bible is reliable, you have to look for opportunities to serve and love that person. Fourth, I want us to develop really good study habits as a community here. Some of us are learning the manuscript method right now. We're having a good time with that. Some days we're having a good time. Some days we don't like it. Anyway, um, but that method teaches us to observe really carefully and to interpret the, the text based on the story in front of us instead of from outside sources. It's hard to be careful in Bible study, but it makes us better students and it makes us more trustworthy ourselves. And finally, don't be afraid to invite someone. If you get into a conversation about the reliability of the Bible, don't be afraid to say out loud, would you be interested in looking at one of the biographies of Jesus with me? We feel like that's an enormous step, right? Like, I can't ask someone to be in a Bible study and the truth is, people don't know what the word gospel means, so don't say that. Do you want to study one of the gospels? It's very hard. People don't know what it means. But, but use the word biography. Would you ever like to look at one of the biographies of Jesus? You would be surprised how many people are waiting for that invitation. And when people get around scripture, especially the stories of Jesus, those stories speak for themselves. You don't have to do a lot of work. Remember Alex who showed up at my house at the beginning? Well, we put Alex on the bus with everybody else and threw his duffel bag in the U-Haul truck, and he spent six days around the table with about 25 other students studying the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And that study ends in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is walking with the disciples and he says to them, who do people say that I am? And they have lots of ideas. Like, well, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead, and some say you're Elijah, and some say one of the prophets. And so he presses in further. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter goes, you're the Christ. Well, somebody read that part of the story out loud in Alex's study the last morning. And when Alex heard Peter say, you're the Christ, He slammed both his hands down on the table and pushed back from the the desk. And he went, dude, that's what I think. Whoa. Did I just become a Christian? I don't know, buddy, maybe. (laughs) I want there to be stories like that among us. The Bible probably is trustworthy. And it is certainly more powerful than we sometimes think. And so let's help people discover that for themselves. Would you stand with me and receive a blessing before you go? (laughs) People of God, go forth from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill your high calling as servants and witnesses of Jesus Christ. And now may the risen Christ go with you, above you, to watch over you, beside you, to befriend you, within you, to empower you, and in front of you to show you the way. Amen. I'm really glad that you were with us this morning. And there is coffee for you at the back.